I am excited to be with y'all this morning as we start a new sermon series called Why Church? So if you follow the church, if you, if you pay attention to conversations about the church, and I don't mean lover's lane, I mean the church universal, the church in a general sense, then you know there's been a lot of talk about the fact that the church is dying. Ah! You know, it's sort of the, the scream of panic as we, um, you know, slowly begin to trickle down in attendance and membership as opposed to trickling up like we have for a while. And, uh, and so there's a lot of Fear about the state of the church, and, and there's a lot of fear around the way that culture seems to be shifting, where people no longer feel compelled or compulsed to go to church like they did in the past, where you'd go to college, and sure, you might stop attending, but then as you get older, you settle down, you start a family, and then you go back to church, and that's just not happening anymore. People are not seeing the need of the church. In fact, uh, people are getting hurt by the church. They're seeing the church as a broken entity. They're seeing a, a, the church as imperfect in an ugly way, not in a nice way. Um, and they're wondering if the church really has anything for them anymore. Now, I want to say, I don't think the church is dying. I think the church is changing. I think our numbers might be going down in one sense. But I think that this is what happens in the lifespan of any organism or any organization. You have your ebbs and flows. And there's been a handful of times when the church has undergone a serious moment of transformation. And I think we're in the middle of one right now. And, and by moment, I mean like over the course of a couple hundred years. <laughs> That's how the church's moments kind of go. Um, our moments last a while. Uh, the first one was in about the year 300, right around there, when a guy named Constantine, who led uh, the big empire at the time, he became a Christian, and all of a sudden the Christian church was not oppressed by the state, it became a friend of the state. It was the state. Now, that's a big change in the church. And then about 500 years ago, a guy named Martin Luther listed out a whole bunch of problems he had with the Catholic Church and began this sort of breakaway that became all of Protestantism as we know it. That is a big shift in the life of the church. And I think right now, as culture continues to shift and as people don't feel compelled to go into church, there's not sort of this culture of Christianity that is pervasive in society anymore. And when I say culture of Christianity, hear me clearly, I don't see that with rose-colored glasses. I think in some ways, I'm really thankful that this culture is changing because it's making us realize that the church has to get serious about who we actually are and what we're actually about because people aren't just going to show up like they used to. Okay, I'm going to go today. Thank you. All right. I, this is why I love Crosswalk, man. Y'all talk back to me. My 930 crew, they just sit there like. At the end, they go, that changed my life. And I'm like, I thought you were dead. Okay. Keep talking. Keep talking. So today I want to scratch the itch of a, of a really specific question, but I think it's a core kind of question that the church has to answer, especially if we're going to reach the next generations that are coming and, and who don't necessarily feel pushed into church. The question is this, how does Christ expect the church to respond to need? I think this is an absolutely crucial question that we're going to have to answer because the generations that are, that are coming up right now and certainly the ones to follow are going to be very, very keyed in on whether or not we can answer this question and whether or not we can answer it in a compelling way. Because if you're growing up right now or if you live in this world, you can look around and know that there is a lot of need, amen? There's a lot of need on a personal level, on a societal level, on a global level, even on a cosmic level, there is need. And so if we're going to be an organization, if we're going to be a community, 
that has anything to say is relevant at all, then we had better be able to answer that kind of a question. What does Christ expect the church to do in response to need? Now, to answer this question, to help us answer this question today, we're going to look at a long passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can open up to Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31. If you're with us online, you're going to see those words come up on your screen, so no worries there. Um, You'll see them on the screens in the room as well. Now, to set the stage for this, the the Gospel of Matthew is is the Gospel that's written specifically for a Jewish audience. Now, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in a second. It is written specifically for a Jewish audience, and this is the very end of Jesus' time of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. So he spends a long time in Matthew's story teaching uh, the people that are gathered around him, and then this is the very last thing he says before the passion narrative. That's the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? So before that big climax ending, this is the last thing he has to say. And anytime someone is saying the last thing they want to say, you might want to listen, right? It's usually the thing they've been getting at the whole time. So this is a very important passage. This is also going to be a passage that might challenge you. It's challenged me this week because this is a time when Jesus sort of stops beating around the bush and he gets real for a second. We love to paint Jesus as the nice, sweet, pastoral little lamb. Oh, sweet. Sweet, loving, kind Jesus. Well, sometimes Jesus flips tables over in temples, right? And this is a time when Jesus is actually going to talk about heaven and hell. And who, who gets in and who doesn't? He's going to sound kind of, kind of old-time religion, Jesus. But I think what he offers us is actually a message that is a message of great hope. I think it's a message that our world today needs to hear more than ever. I think he, he, he gave this message like 2,000 years too early. It's like perfect for right now, right? It's one of those kinds of passages in the scripture. They're like, man, I feel like this is perfect for the setting we're in today. So we're going to read this. We're going to be challenged by it. And hopefully we'll leave this place feeling encouraged and feeling graced by God. Let's pray before we read scripture. I like to invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of this so that it's more than just words on a page. But it actually becomes something that we can conduct our lives by. So let's, let's pray. Gracious God. We are thankful for you this morning. We're thankful that we have a church that we can come to. And when we say church, we don't mean four walls and a roof. Although we love our building, we love our worship space. But that's not what the church is for us. We could be out on the parking lot this morning, God. We're so thankful we have a community of faith. We can come to after the best week of our lives or the worst week of our lives, who can dance and celebrate with us and who can also mourn and cry with us. We're so thankful that we have sisters and brothers who can encourage us and uplift us, whose voice we can join with and worship, and whose lives we can share. God, as we prepare to read your scripture this morning, as we prepare to read the words of your gospel written by Matthew, we ask that you would bless these words, that you would make them come alive for us, help them to leap off of the screens and off of the pages of our Bibles and into our hearts that they might change the way that we live. All this we pray in your son's holy and precious resurrected name. Amen. 
We're going to read the whole scripture, and then we're going to go back sort of piece by piece and talk about it, okay? So just buckle up. It's a little bit longer, but, but we'll get through this together. Okay, so let's dig in. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, says this. When the Son of Man, Jesus is talking to this crowd, and he's talking about this sort of end-time scenario. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And if you're wondering what sheep and goats are about, I don't have time for that today. That's a whole other sermon. I guess just go read your study Bible or something. That's the only thing I got. That's all I got for you. Can't talk about sheep and goats today. He'll put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And it goes on to say, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These are the people who will inherit the kingdom of God. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And and when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it, God, that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are the members of my family, you did it to me. That's where I wish it stopped, but it doesn't. Then he will say to those in his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is not happy rainbows and sunshine Jesus, right? This is Metallica Jesus. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. Naked, and you gave me no clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. Right? I mean, that is a hard verse to stomach. But we've got to talk about it because this is how Jesus chooses to end his teaching in the gospel of Matthew. So let's go back to the part that sounds nice. Let's start there and we'll work our way to the more challenging stuff. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 35, just so it's fresh in our minds. Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. So I said earlier that Matthew was written for a Jewish audience. That's important to remember when you read the Gospel of Matthew because so much of the way that he portrays Jesus is meant to to be a relevant, compelling message for someone who is a Jew living in those days. And if you were a Jew living in those days, you would understand the, the dynamic between Pharisees and everybody else. And the Pharisees and everybody else dynamic runs all through Matthew. And here's the deal. Pharisees, for those who don't know, those were the, the religious elites. These were the people who had gained power and wealth and authority through the temple. 
And they were in charge. They were large and in charge. And they were the ones in charge of telling everybody exactly how to live or else they'd go to hell. Now, if you go back to original, way deep Old Testament, you're going to find that the Jewish faith originally sounds a lot like the Christian faith that we have today. It's built upon tenets of taking care of the orphan and widow, taking care of the poor and the oppressed, giving sight to the blind and setting the captive free. When Jesus stands in the temple at the start of his ministry and says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news to the blind and the captive. He's not making this up. He's reading from Isaiah, right? This is the foundation of the Jewish tradition, and yet the Pharisees had forgotten all of that. And one thing Pharisees had gotten really, really good at in their wealth and in their power, they'd gotten really good at finding excuses not to help. Because if you're a Jewish person, you've got a really strong mandate to help the people around you. And yet when Jesus comes onto the scene, the widow and the orphan are not being cared for. The prostitute is being cast out. The lepers are living in their own colony. People are having to go to temple, give what little money they have to these really rich elites so that they could buy even one little animal so that they could sacrifice it and maybe pray and hope they could get into heaven. This was the religion that Jesus stepped into, and it did not look like Judaism to him. The Pharisees had gotten really good at finding excuses not to help, and they're excuses that probably sound really have today. I mean, what can we really do, Right? Or they're kind of messy. They make me uncomfortable. Or actually, I'm, I'm scared of them. Those lepers can go stay in a colony way over there. Or maybe the biggest excuse is all is, I don't really want to help because I kind of like where I am. I like being rich and powerful. I like being in charge. And if I get down on my knees and help someone less than me, what's that going to do for my status? I love that Jesus in this litany calls us to be keenly aware of the present. He does this throughout the Gospels. If you notice in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly calling us to stop focusing on the past or the future and to simply live in the present. And here he applies that to the way that we address needs. Notice he didn't say, I was hungry. And so you got together with community organizers and set up a food pantry, and you also had a, a strategic organization designed to end food, uh, food deserts in my community. Right? Now, hear me clearly. Those kinds of responses are great. They are critical. Systemic injustice is bad, and we have to address it. But sometimes the biggest excuse I ever hear from Christians as to why they don't address the needs of the day is, well, it's too big, and what am I really going to do? It's a bigger issue than that. Homelessness is bigger than panhandling. Hunger is bigger than a hungry day. You know, it's bigger, it's bigger, it's bigger. How we, you know, rehabilitate ex-cons is bigger than just one person. And Jesus is saying, yes, and, but no, it's not. Because sometimes a person's going to come up to you and all they need in that moment is a meal. They don't need you to fix their lives. They just need a meal. They don't need you to fix their eternity. They just need a cup of water. They don't need you to fix their entire next seven decades of their life. They just need you to give them a word of encouragement, give them a single light of hope. And we get so caught up in the bigness and the massiveness of it that we lose sight of the present needs that are around us every single day. And before we know it, we start to look like Pharisees who say, what can we really do? Yeah, that's just the way the world is. 
I do think that parts of the church are dying. And there are parts that I'm excited to die. See, a dead church, a dead church finds excuses not to help. It's too big. I don't want to. We don't have the resources. What can we really do anyways? Or maybe we just don't really feel like helping. We'd rather take care of ourselves. But a Jesus-centered church calls us to respond in the present. Don't get lost in the massiveness. In Stan's sermon this morning, he talks about Mother Teresa and how she says, my goal was never to help 40,000 people. My goal was to help one person at a time. It always starts small, and it lives in the present. Let's keep moving. Beginning in verse 37, Jesus goes on to say this. Then the righteous, now this is a really interesting passage. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So another thing that we have to keep in mind. This is, this is where Jesus is putting an exclamation point on, on a theme he's been developing in Matthew's gospel. Again, Matthew's gospel's for a Jewish audience. One thing the Pharisees had also gotten really good at was blurring the lines between faith and action. But they did that in a really unhealthy and, and, and honestly hurtful way. Because they blurred the lines of faith and action in a way that said, well, you have to act the way we tell you to, or you don't get to have the faith that we're offering you. See, they had inherited what they called the law from God. And the law became this like 600 some odd list of rules. And the Pharisees were really good at following the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. And so they, would, they had this big checklist and they said, see, here's the cool thing is all of us, we've checked all the, it's funny how the Pharisees, we made us check all the checkboxes off. We're really good at this. But if you want to come to our party, oh, look at that. You're a sinner. You're going to have to buy a goat. And guess what? The prices for goats just went up. And if you don't sacrifice that goat to God, you're going to hell. That's the way the church was functioning. Jesus comes into this religion that had blurred the lines between faith and action in an unhealthy, hurtful way that was designed to exclude. It was designed to make the temple have fewer and fewer people in it because then they could feel really self-righteous and, wow, doesn't it feel great when you know you're the only one on the VIP list to heaven, right? So Jesus steps into that theology and he blurs the lines between faith and action too, but in a radically different way. And it sounds something like this. The best way I can summarize it is when Jesus says that you can know a tree by its fruit. Now that might seem like a short little pithy statement that you go, what is that, why is that profound? It's profound because of this. Jesus says that we're not saved through our actions, right? It's not our works that get us into heaven. That is a basic Christian doctrine. We're not saved through our actions. We're saved by the grace of God and by having faith in God. But, Jesus says with a big but, B-U-T, but... Your actions can reveal the state of your faith. If you say you're an apple tree, but all I see are pears, are you an apple tree? Not really. If you say you have faith in God, but you're all caught up on legalism and who's in and who's out and all about these rules, do you really have faith in God? Or are you getting kind of stuck in something else? Does that really, do you have faith in God or do you have faith in the checklist? 
So Jesus blurs the lines between faith and action, and he does it here. This is where he puts a huge exclamation point on it, because Jesus tells the story of these end times, and there's this righteous group that God is saying, you are the ones who served me and followed me and did what I asked. And what do the righteous say? They say, yes, God, we did. We devoted our lives to you. We went to church, and we proclaimed our faith in Jesus, and we got baptized, and we're so glad to have served you. Is that what they say? They say, when did we do that? And he said, when you welcomed anyone, especially the people that you think are less than you, you were welcoming me. You were serving me. Now, as a pastor, one of the most common questions I get, probably the number one question I get from people who are new to the faith or people who are wrestling with their faith, they ask me this question. Maybe you've had this question too. Scott, what about my Muslim friend? What about my Jewish friend? What about my atheist friend? What about the kid that grows up in Bangladesh? What about the kid that grows up in a really hurtful church and rejects the church? Are, are they going to hell? Is that what the Bible is telling me? Are they going to hell? Because now here's the deeper thing that they're not telling their pastor because I think they're just scared to, but I wish they would because it's honest and it's real is because if that's who God is, I don't want to serve a God like that. Have you ever had that same question or that same frustration, that same wrestling in your soul? Now, I don't pretend to understand the intricacies of eternity, right? Can we all say amen to that real quick? None of us understand the intricacies of eternity so much of the Gospels as Jesus begging us to get off the throne of judgment, right? Here's what I do know, that Jesus chooses in the final act of his teaching, in the very final moments of his teaching, he chooses to lift up this image of people who are righteous and going to heaven who have no idea they're serving the Lord. They have no idea. Now, if I was born in the Middle East, I would be the world's best imam. If we were gathered today in Jerusalem, we would be a synagogue. Right? Don't tell me any differently. I, just, I, I know that so much of what we believe in, in terms of what we articulate of our faith is born out of the culture we're born into. I think there are people, and this is where I'm going to lose some people, but just stay with me. And you can disagree with your pastor, and that's okay. Okay? I believe there are people in this world who are following Jesus, who are serving God and serving the Christian faith, who cannot articulate a Christian faith to save their lives. They don't know how to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has saved me from my sins because they don't go to church. They're not around church. That's not where they are. Or maybe they can't articulate that because the church they went to beat them down and bruised them up so much that that doesn't really look like the love of God to them either. And I read Matthew 25, and what I see pressed into my soul is that God's love is big enough, and God blurs the lines between faith and action. And God says, sometimes your actions reveal a deeper faith that maybe you're not even aware of or can articulate, and that extends the table. Jesus blurs the lines between faith and action so that more people are welcomed in rather than shoved out. Because it's not a checklist of rules to be followed, but it's more of a, hey, what's the state of your faith? That's what actions reveal to us. What's the state of your faith? I know that a dead church connects faith and actions to exclude, but a Jesus-centered church connects faith and action to include. Our actions matter, not because they save us, but because they reveal what we actually have faith in. You with me? Matthew 25, beginning in verse 41, this is the last portion. It says this. This is the fun part, guys. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will say, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. One of my favorite quotes right now as I think about the state of the church and the direction the church in a general sense is going. I, I tried to figure out who said it first. It was either Reggie McNeil or Ed Stetzer, uh, and, and I can't figure out which one of these church gurus said it first. They both said it in different interviews, and neither one of them cites the other. It's really frustrating. It's, one of them said this. It's not the church. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. Let's say that again. That's like crazy profound. That's like one of those statements like, if you get that quote out, like, you're, you're set. You're, you're like, I, that's my contribution to the kingdom. I'm good. It's like that good. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. Jesus is saying this, and this is where he puts like three exclamation points down when he makes clear what happens to those of us who don't act out of our faith. He says, if you truly have faith, then that faith is going to be born out. You will become a living gospel to the world around you. You will welcome in the hungry and the thirsty and the hurting, right? You will give food to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothes, clothes on their back. That is what you will do. If you truly have faith, if you're an apple tree, you're going to bear apples. If you truly have faith, you are going to become a living gospel to the world around you. But here's the kicker, not just to people that you like, not just to people who make you comfortable. Not just to people who make you feel safe. Not just to people who can pay you back. Not just to people who look like you, act like you, think like you. Not just to people who make you feel good about yourself. He says, if you truly have faith, that faith will be made real. It will become a living gospel to the world around you, to the least of these. Jesus says, look on the fringes. Look to the outside of the walls. Look to the people who are far away from the Christian community, to the faith community. Look to the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the hurting, the outcast. That is where you will find me. I said, Jesus, we don't remember seeing you. He said, I was there the whole time. That was me. Every judgmental glance you gave them, every hurtful word you hurled their way, every time you walked by, and thought terrible things about them as you moved on with your life, that was me. That was me. In the Gospels, Jesus says this over and over and over again, and he puts three exclamation points on it. The mission of God is to be here for the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the captive. God is not here for the Pharisee. Now, God wants the Pharisee to be convicted. God wants the Pharisee to repent. But God's mission is not to make the Pharisee feel better. It is not good news in a literal sense to a Pharisee's ears. Amen? Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is when he stands in the temple and says, I have come to proclaim the good news of the Lord's favor. It's good news to the poor. Release to the captive. Sight to the blind. God's mission then has a church to become those things in the world. Now here's what I know about dead churches. They are not compelling. Dead churches believe that service is an extra part of their faith. They think it's something that they tack on when they have time. 
They think it's something that they do to go the extra mile for God. No, it is the mile. And guess what? The people outside the church are watching. And guess what else? People outside the church, they know who Jesus is. There ain't nobody in America that doesn't know the name of Jesus. Let's get that clear right now. And here's the craziest thing. A lot of them have read the Bible. A lot of them have heard Jesus say, I'm here for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and the downtrodden. And then they look at the church and they don't see that. The Barna Institute is a research statistics-based institute, kind of like the Pew Research Study, except they are specifically focused mostly on Protestantism in America. That's their primary focus. And the Barna Institute conducted this huge survey of unchurched people. They they, uh, did a, a survey with unchurched people between the ages of 22 and 37. 22 and 37. I say that. I didn't say millennials, even though that's what that is because we think millennials are teenagers. No, we're losing our hair, right? Unchurched people between the ages of 22 and 37, they were asked what they think of Christians. Do you want to know what their responses were? No, you don't. 87% said judgmental. 85% said hypocritical. 91% said anti-homosexual. 70% said insensitive to others. Judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual. Insensitive to others. Does that sound like the mission of God to you? Dead churches think that service and mission are an extra part of their faith that they tack on when they can. But Jesus-centered churches say serving is an essential part of their faith. And here's the best part. When we get crystal clear about that, that we are an extension of the mission of God, that the mission of God has a church and not the other way around, people outside the church are going to be super thrilled to see that because people outside the church understand that service and mission are an essential part of their lives as well. Did y'all hear me on this? This is a change that when we make it, we don't understand the kind of transformation that will come inside these walls. Because the hypocritical, judgmental, anti-homosexual, insensitive to other statistics will begin to go down as they begin to see God's mission lived out more in the church as an essential part of faith. Now I want to tell you a story. I'm going to close with this. My faith was developed not through Sunday school, and God bless my Sunday school teachers. They were awesome. They're awesome. And if you're a Sunday school teacher, God bless you. You are awesome. My faith was developed mostly through my hands and feet and sweat on mission trips. It's actually how I knew Dee Dee before I knew Dee Dee. I actually knew her husband, Jeff. Uh, Jeff led the CTCYN, the Central Texas Conference Youth in Mission. It's this big program that every year during the summer, all the churches in the Central Texas Conference, the United Methodist Church, whoo, that's a big acronym, all of them get their youth groups together. They go out to these different living centers, and they, they impact communities mainly through manual labor. And when you go, so you think that you're going to build fences or wheelchair ramps or to sheetrock, and I've sheetrocked in New Orleans in July. Whew, that got me to know the love of Jesus, I guess. Um, We went to Arkansas one year, and there was a work team. Not my work team, another work team. They thought they were there to help a client, uh, and I think build them a fence, but I can't quite remember. So they go there, and they meet the client, and the first day they find out that it just so happens to be his birthday that Thursday. He's turning 97, which to teenagers is like Bible old, right? Like, are you in there? Is your name mentioned, right? That's old when you're a teenager. 
So they were super pumped to throw them a birthday party. They go to Walmart that week or Dollar General or whatever. They, they get a, you know, a nice little birthday cake, and they get some cheap little party supplies and little party games and stuff. Nothing extravagant, nothing expensive. But they just want to throw them a birthday party because that's going to be fun. They say, you know, we're going to do this on Thursday for lunch. We'll do the little party, and then we'll get back to work because, I mean, that's not what we're here to do. We're not here to have a party. We're here to do our work. And so they go, and they bring the cake out on Thursday, and the candles are lit, and they're singing happy birthday to you, right? And all of a sudden, this 97-year-old man, I mean, and he's like, you know, a country guy, so stoic, you know, weathered face. All of a sudden, tears just start welling up, and he just starts bawling. This was totally unexpected. This is not how this guy had behaved all week. And if they got singing, they said, sir, is everything okay? What, did we do something wrong? He said, I've never had a birthday party before. No one's ever thrown me a birthday party before, 97. And that work team thought they were there to build a fence. When you're radically attuned to the needs of the present, when you allow the excuses to fade away, when you see Jesus in the face of the one asking for help, it's going to change the church. Jesus reminds us that he is not in the people that we want to help. He's not in the people that are easy to help. He's not in the people that seem like fun to help. Jesus is the cashier after a long day of work who just needs somebody to ask them how they're doing for a change. Jesus is the custodial worker who has been cleaning up everybody's messes all day long and could use just one word of encouragement or thank you from someone in your office. Jesus is the single mom at the grocery store with three kids acting a fool who's just praying that somebody would not judge her and instead offer her an encouraging word. Jesus is the homeless person who's asking for change or for a meal and hoping that somebody stops driving past and driving past and driving past. Jesus, this is going to get me in trouble. Jesus is a Honduran family at our border wondering who's going to let them in. Jesus is a gay teen who has the courage to come out to his parents wondering what they're going to say. Jesus is the person who's on the outside, in the margins, who's under oppression, and the world is wondering if the church is going to answer, not someday, not next week, not in a hundred years, but today. Do we have an answer for today? I do think that parts of the church are dying, and I praise God for that, because I think there are parts of this church that have been dead for a long time, and we finally get a chance to prune because what I know is going to remain is not a dead church, but a changed church. Because I believe that God is a God of resurrection. And I believe what we're experiencing right now is a resurrection moment in the life of the church global. And what I know to be true is this. The generations to come are going to have to see us respond to need. When we get that right, not just inside these walls, but in our daily lives in the simplest of moments... We will see a church that is thriving and growing and more pursuing God than ever before. And that is a church that I want to be a part of. How about you? Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the way that it sticks in our side like a thorn challenging us. Maybe even painful because what we realize is that we... We have turned you away. How many times this week, God, have I not offered you any food or any water? How many times this week, God, have I not visited you or cared for you? God, how many times this week have I not opened up my home to you? 
But God, the best news is, is that you don't ask us to sit in that conviction. You don't ask us to wallow in our own misery. You ask us to turn our eyes to Jesus and to realize that the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the face of Jesus is all around us in this world. That Jesus comes into our life and out of our life every single day as a person in need. And the only question you have for us is what will we do? Will we continue to live comfortable, simple, easy lives? Or will we take the challenge to be the church? Not a church of walls, but a church of people who are hungry for you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who resurrects all things. Amen.